You are listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled The Lacuna. Hello my radio friends, I'm so glad you've joined me today for another in the series Give Me the Bible. Today we'll be talking about the lacuna. So you might ask, what's a lacuna? One might be tempted to think that it's the name of a car, as many car names end with an uh sound, but no. It's not the name of a car. Lacuna simply means an empty space. It's often a medically applied term, referring to a gap or space in a bone instead of being well filled with bone, there's a hole. It also refers to an argument or even a piece of writing where what is said is irrelevant to the rest. There is a gap, a cavity, a hole, a lacuna. But today we're not talking about bones. We're talking about what some people claim happened at the point of time when Jesus died on the cross. So therefore, I want to share with you what really happened at the death of Jesus. Each of the Gospel writers writes about it, and each one highlights something a bit different to the others. It was because of Jewish opposition to Jesus that the Jews wanted and eventually had Jesus murdered. The reason the Jews were so angry was that Jesus had upset their religious culture and pointed out their hypocrisy. They were also upset because Jesus had been instructing the people that there was a different and only way to get eternal life, and that was through him. But what upset them the most was that Jesus claimed to be on equal terms with God the Father. In other words, that he was God. In their religious culture, anyone who claimed to be God was guilty of blasphemy and consequently, they said, deserved death. So, with trumped-up charges against Jesus, the Jewish authorities took their case to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, in order to have Jesus killed. Pilate questioned Jesus and realised Jesus had done nothing wrong, nothing deserving what the Jews were requesting. But because of their continual pressure, Pilate caved in and gave permission to have Jesus crucified. It was a gross miscarriage of justice. But at the same time, it was necessary if Jesus was able to save mankind from their sins. 
And you have probably heard how Jesus, totally sinless and innocent of any wrongdoing, was forced to carry his own cross from Jerusalem to a hilly place outside the city to be crucified. Two others, thieves, criminals, were also crucified at the same time, one on each side of Jesus. And as they hung there amid the jeers and taunts of the careless mob who were there to witness the scene, one of the thieves recognised that Jesus was totally innocent of any wrongdoing. Furthermore, that thief must have realised who Jesus really was. Perhaps he had heard about Jesus earlier. Perhaps he had been present when Jesus spoke to the ever-present crowds on one occasion and maybe had been convicted by what Jesus said but did nothing about it. I want to read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, from verse 39 to 43. I'm using the New King James Version of the Bible. It says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged, that means who was hanging on the cross, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise. There are a number of things we can learn from this little conversation. The first is that the two thieves represent two classes of people. Both were condemned as both had sinned. One was not repentant for what he had done. All he wanted was to get away from what had happened to him, in other words, hanging on the cross, and he wanted to continue life as normal. The other, however, recognised his wrongdoing and was repentant. He recognised that his only hope was in Jesus. And although there is no record of him acknowledging what he had done wrong, it is implied by his request that the Lord remember him when he took his place in heaven again as ruler of the universe. Jesus assured the repentant thief that he would be given a place in the kingdom of glory after Jesus had returned to heaven. Jesus' actual words were, Assuredly, I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise.
The New International Version of the Bible puts it this way. I tell you the truth today. You will be with me in paradise. A little after this short conversation, at around 6 p.m., Jesus died. Because it was Friday, also known as the Preparation Day, when the Jews and Christians made all the preparations so as not to have to work on the Sabbath, the followers of Jesus just had enough time to take Jesus' body down from the cross and lay it in the tomb before Sabbath came at sunset late Friday afternoon. Normally, the body would have been properly embalmed, that is, smeared all over with a fragrant ointment, and then wrapped, but there was not enough time to do that properly. Meanwhile, the Roman soldiers came along and broke the legs of the two thieves. The question is, why? Simply this, the two thieves were still alive. They were also taken down from their crosses, but the Bible does not say where they were put and when they died. But what the Bible does say is what the followers of Jesus did. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 56 we learn, But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. What commandment was that? Well, it was the fourth of the Ten Commandments, which speak about honouring God by keeping the seventh day of the week holy. You can read it for yourself in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. Jesus' followers had left the job of the burial procedure incomplete. Now, many Protestant believers these days wrongly believe that when someone dies, their body and mind separate. Sometimes they call the mind the soul, and sometimes they call it the spirit. And here is where the lacuna comes in. Jesus had said to the repentant thief that he would be with Jesus in paradise. He had used these words, and I'll quote them again. He said, Assuredly, I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus never told lies, so these words must be, and of course are true. Now, some people read that verse somewhat differently, and I'll read it in another way, simply by shifting the comma. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say unto you, Today you will be with me in paradise. So the question was, or the question is, was the thief in paradise with Jesus that day? And this is a fairly important point. 
because depending on how you read it, one way it makes sense and the other it doesn't. So the verse says, Assuredly I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise. And some people read it, Assuredly I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. Was the repentant thief in paradise on Friday? Was Jesus in paradise on that day, Friday? Well, we don't know when that thief died, as the Bible doesn't have anything further to say about him. He may have remained alive for some time before he died. In view of the fact that it was so close to the Sabbath when the bodies were taken down from the crosses, one could safely say that the thief died sometime during the evening that night. You need to remember that back then the old day ended and the new day began at sunset. So would that thief have been in paradise with Jesus that Friday? Now we're going to take a short break and we'll go on straight afterwards.
Just before the break, we were asking, I was asking the question, was Jesus in paradise that Friday? Well, the answer is to be found in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. With the, the Apostle John records what happened on the resurrection morning, that is, Sunday morning. The women who were there to embalm Jesus' body got up early and hurried down to the burial place only to discover that their embalming ointments and bandages were no longer needed because Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb. This was strange. It was disappointing, especially as their very much loved Lord and Master was gone. It was enough that Jesus had been crucified, but to add insult to injury, now he was gone. The Gospel of Matthew fills in the gaps for us. As Matthew wrote that an angel had told the women that Jesus had risen from the dead. Mary Magdalene was there, but she may have been so charged with grief and emotion that she did not comprehend what had happened. She was crying bitterly at the loss and disappearance of Jesus. Then she saw two angels sitting in the tomb. They asked her why she was crying. And I'll read to you from John chapter 20, verses 13 to 18. Mary replied, They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, Why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Aramaic Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Now, where is paradise? Well, it's where God the Father dwells. And where does God the Father dwell? In heaven. Jesus plainly said that in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. So paradise, mainly, is another word for heaven. Now, here is where this lacuna exists. If the spirits of people go to heaven after they die to be with God, as many Protestants believe, how come Jesus plainly stated to Mary that he had not gone to heaven, that is to paradise, after he had died? He had been dead, hadn't he? The simple fact is, that Jesus had been resting in the tomb. When the body dies and the blood stops flowing, the mind ceases to function. There are no thoughts, no remembrances, no praise, no knowledge with anyone when they're dead. Mistakenly, 
people have accepted both Egyptian and Greek philosophy that body and mind are separate entities and that the mind can exist without or, that is, outside the body. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that when God made man, he formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It's from Genesis 2, verse 7. Without the God-given breath of life, man was nothing more than a stone statue. The spirit refers to life. I once had a customer bring a car to me for repairs, complaining that it had a knocking sound in the motor. I parked the car in the shed, as there were other things for me to do that day before I could attend to it. The next day I was backing it outside into the driveway when there was a loud bang and the motor stopped, never to run again. When I looked to see what happened, there was a lot of oil that had sprayed around the motor and a big hole in the side. In simple terms, the motor had blown up. What had happened in reality was that a big end journal had worked loose and then at that unfortunate moment it flew off and the connecting rod smacked a big hole in the side of the motor. If the owner had driven his car another 100 metres when bringing it to me, what happened to me would have happened to him. When the motor died, the whole car was dead. It wasn't going anywhere. And so it is with human beings. When we die, part of us does not fly away up to heaven and straight away be with God. That's a lie. Satan's great deception, which he proclaimed to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What Jesus said to the thief was, I say unto you today that you will be with me in paradise later on. Neither Jesus nor the thief was in paradise that day. And it amazes me that people, Protestants, swallow Satan's lie so easily. But when one examines the Bible carefully to find out what is truth, it's there. Yet so many people accept error without question. They've been deceived. You see, by claiming that at death the soul, the mind, if you like, goes to God, is a bit like saying that when someone is born, they are given immortality. But that's not true. God's faithful people will be given immortality when Jesus returns at his second coming. Otherwise, the Bible contradicts itself. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53, we're told that only at the return of Jesus will the perishable, that is, subject to death and decay, must clothe itself with imperishable. And the mortal, which means subject to death, 
with immortality. Only then will God's faithful people be given immortality. You know, the Bible must make sense. Otherwise, who can know what is truth? It's like a jigsaw puzzle, and all the pieces must fit. You cannot have one bit contradicting another bit. The go-home-to-God-at-death deception is a theological lacuna, and the argument, if carefully examined, is grossly wrong. Don't be, be deceived, my dear friends. Your dead loved ones are not up in heaven, looking down at all the misery and trouble that's going on in planet Earth. They are not conscious of anything. But if they've been faithful at the time of Jesus' return, they will be raised and given immortality then. We must stop for today. Why don't you join me again next time and learn more truths from God's book, the Bible. Until then, I wish you many blessings and joy and peace. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. Yes, I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today.